0: we're going to read our scripture at this time and so I would ask you to find Joshua chapter 2 we're going to read the whole chapter Uh, we're evangelicals we are up to the challenge Um, let's I encourage you once you find it to uh, stay there we'll focus I'll I'll read verses uh, one verse from the last chapter as well and we'll focus on verses 8 through 11 uh, in the our text today Joshua chapter 2 Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did at Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell us, or if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills to, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, "'You have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, "'and unless you have brought your father and mother, "'your brothers and all your family, into your house. "'If any of them go outside your house into the street, "'their blood will be on their own heads. "'We will not be responsible. "'As for those who are in the house with you, "'their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. "'But if you tell what we are doing, "'we will be released from the oath you made us swear.' "'Agreed,' she replied. "'Let it be as you say.' So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men rushed back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us the title today is courageous conviction i'm afraid if you're expecting uh, a lot from this passage i'll disappoint because there's so much that goes on that we could make of this passage so we're only going to make some relevant points uh, with the series that we're in right now but the the charge from joshua chapter one is be strong and courageous And you can see that it's said a number of times in the last chapter, chapter 1. Ron preached about that a couple weeks ago. Encapsulated very well in chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. They are now having to live into that reality. Why do they need courage? Well, as we've kind of established, as we've begun this series, There's a new leader in charge after Moses was in charge for a long time. They're at the point where they're sitting on the east side of the Jordan River looking over and they're about to cross the Jordan River. You might have expected they would have done it by chapter 2 but they didn't. That'll come in chapter 3. They'll start that process. They have a new leader. They're going to cross the Jordan. Across the river, it's hostile territory. The people across the river don't want this whole group of people to come in. So there's a battle ahead. You could think of it, uh, why they would need to be strong and courageous if you think of somebody who served in the military and they have to go into battle and they've got a new leader who's not really battle-tested. There's going to be a little bit of fear that goes into that. And and we could ask ourselves, if we want to put ourselves in the mindset of what Joshua and the spies and the Israelites are facing at this point, consider this question. Have you had moments where you've had to prepare for a tough but necessary encounter in life? We've probably all had those moments where we've had to prepare for something like that, where we've had to mentally uh, just get yourself in the zone to get ready. Maybe it's something simple. You know, I'm not a fan of bees and wasps, but every year you've know, you got to take care of a wasp nest that's somewhere on the house. You've got to mentally prepare for that and go out there and spray it and run away, uh, sometimes screaming a little bit. But have you had moments where you had to prepare for a tough but necessary encounter? Maybe it's within family or workplace situations, interpersonal Issues, those are the ones where we usually have the most fear and anxiety, where we have to handle something important, either in the case of confronting some wrongdoing, maybe, or some wrong behavior, or confessing to some wrongdoing or wrong behavior on our own part. They have a mission ahead. God has said, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. He said it over and over, and now they've got to kind of begin to live into that. And so the the point that we could begin to make from this point on is that when God gives the mission or when God reveals the mission, we respond with courageous conviction. It rhymes. It's very nice. When God reveals the mission, we respond with courageous conviction. When we move forward into times of uncertainty as we live in right now, we know the mission. For us, for instance, we're disciples who make disciples. That's the mission. But the world is changing, and the world has changed around us. We move ahead with courageous conviction, knowing that God has already called us, but recognizing that we have to prepare ourselves to go out and share the good news and make disciples. So if we talk about this idea of conviction, let's start there and go backwards in our term. Conviction, if you just Google it, you don't need to right now because I already did. So it's a firmly held belief, real simple, but we can get more particular than that i think for our benefit and our our setting which is it's not just the firmly held belief in anything it's the belief that truth is found in god which leads to hope and salvation that's the more particular setting that we should take from that that truth is found in god leading to hope and salvation and when we use the word conviction it's virtually the same word as faith and belief they're they're all fairly interchangeable throughout scripture it just turns out that faith has been kind of i think Culturally compromised. It means almost nothing when we use it now, culturally. Conviction is a great word that substitutes in there nicely. It's what we believe. Faith and fear, though, interestingly, are opposites, and they also appear in about equal proportion throughout the Old Testament, both those words, the words that are used for faith and fear. Meaning they often go together, they're often kind of in constant battle with one another. And really, when you think about it, when it's time to do something that's right, Sometimes that's not always easy, is it? Sometimes that requires some kind of courageous conviction to do what's right. But I want to give us some truths as we consider that when God reveals the mission, we walk forward with courageous conviction. Um, Some truths about what we get from the text that kind of push us forward in that world of courageous conviction following the mission. The first thing I want to point out is that God's mission requires a plan, and it requires a plan on the part of his people when we're going to follow through god's already got a plan but god doesn't sharpen the swords of the israelites they've still got to put together the strategy and the attack plan to go in when they're going to go into the land so god's mission requires a plan let me give you some scriptures um, that would tell us that god's mission requires a plan these are all from proverbs because it's chock full of needing to plan and the wisdom of planning So Proverbs 21.5 says the plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. Proverbs 16.9 says in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. There's two plans in mind there. Proverbs 15.22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. And and Proverbs 6.6-8, go to the ant, you sluggard. Now, I'm not calling you a sluggard, okay? The Proverbs are. Go to the ant, you sluggard; consider its ways, and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler; yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. And finally, Proverbs 19:21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord, it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. We should plan, but we know whose plan we live under. Ultimately, what the, all, the one who's going to supersede anything we plan and do. Now, I, wanna, I think this is really important to point out, especially in a church context, that God's mission requires a plan because sometimes we don't think God's mission requires as much of a plan as we think. God is a God of chaos, of order, not chaos. Got to get that phrase right. God is a God of order, not chaos. God has a plan. for we're created in the image of God and through Jesus Christ, we're being redeemed back into that image. Guess what? We are being made into people of order, not people of chaos. Plans make sense. The second thing, I think, reason that it's important to point out that God's mission requires a plan is that sometimes when you think of the work of the Holy Spirit within the body of believers, we think of the Holy Spirit as the spontaneous spirit. And yes, the work of the Holy Spirit may often seem quite spontaneous to us, but that's really not what the Holy Spirit is up to doing. The Holy Spirit is the one who gifts us for ministry, and sometimes that surprises us in the timing, but it doesn't surprise God. God's got a plan. God's gifting us for the mission. And sometimes we we think of of the Holy Spirit acting only in spontaneous ways. And what that means is we do things like we poo-poo written prayers. The Holy Spirit couldn't possibly work through written prayer, right? It's got to come from the heart. But why couldn't the Holy Spirit work when somebody's writing something down? I think the Holy Spirit does. Or pastors do it with sermons. And don't believe this when a pastor says, um, most of the time they say, you know, I want to not do much effort, not do much planning, because I want the Holy Spirit to work at the last minute. That's often poor planning, not the Holy Spirit right? I hope the Holy Spirit is working on Monday and Tuesday or Wednesday when I'm working on the sermon, not just now. I I hope I have a witness to that, that the Holy Spirit works all the time. Sometimes, as I was saying, God's a God of order, uh, uh, not a God of chaos. The Holy Spirit works. Sometimes we, as God's people, because we don't have a plan, we pursue good ministries that aren't our calling. We will do that uh occasionally or often if we're not careful there are all kinds of good things we can do but not all good things are what we're called to do and if we don't have a plan if we're not living under god's mission and understanding how what god has called us to specifically and how the spirit has gifted us we'll do the wrong thing even if it's a good thing and we feel bad saying that we shouldn't do that because it's a good thing and not doing it doesn't mean it's not good it just means it's not our calling it's not our giftedness it's not what the holy spirit has brought us together to do specifically God's mission requires a plan, and frankly, anything as important as God's mission, wouldn't you think it would require a plan? I mean, it's a pretty important thing that God has called us to do. If God plans, shouldn't we? But the other thing, a truth I want to point out is that courageous conviction may take us to places we do not expect. And there you can see some of this in the text. So if we said conviction is the belief that truth is found in God and it leads to hope and salvation— Uh, The courage, if you add that to the mix, to the conversation, uh, courage really just is to do what you believe. So if you have courageous conviction, if you believe it, you do it. It's as simple as that. If you say you believe it, but you don't do it, you actually believe something else. You believe what you do. Courageous conviction means we're actually going to follow through, even if it's difficult to do it. And so here we can consider the spies, and we can consider Rahab. And we can consider their action and what looks like courageous conviction. If you go back to verses 8 through 11 and have that in focus, it says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she, that's Rahab, went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did in Sihon and Og the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear, and every, everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now the spies, as they go in, they have pretty simple commands. They're to go, to look, and to have Jericho in focus specifically. That's it. It's very simple. Um, You may also, just as as an aside, notice that the only people who get names in this whole passage are Joshua and Rahab. She's the star of the story as you read through it. The spies aren't named. The king of Jericho is not named. And by the way, when it says king, it's kind of like mayor plus is what that would really mean in his case. Like just not quite ascended to governor, but over Jericho and kind of a little region around. But there's a lot of kings in the region at that time. You can see that the spies go, and it's not exactly what we call a secret mission, because they're obviously found out very quickly that they're there. The king sends, goes exactly to Rahab's house. He knows where they went. It's not a secret thing. Um, And one has to kind of wonder as they do this with Joshua, it it is a reconnaissance mission, but one has to kind of wonder in the back of your mind, is it it not just a, a, a reconnaissance mission, but a confidence mission? Like, they know the mission at hand, but they kind of send them in to be like, but but is God really certain that we can do this? We should check this out just to make sure. There's a little bit of that that kind of plays out uh, in the text, that they're trying to gain some confidence, too, in what God has called them to do. But courageous conviction may take us to places that we did not expect. It certainly does that with the spies here. And when we live God's mission with courageous conviction, it turns out that we may find unlikely partners in ministry they find Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. The text tells us that. The other texts in scripture will tell us that. It turns out that she probably has a dual role as innkeeper, hostel. That's probably what the home is, is both of those things, um, which is not atypical of the time and the place. It says she's living in the wall. The actual language used there is the wall in the wall, but it's a little confusing. Probably she's a house right on the outside edge of the wall, um, that's almost like a buffer zone around the wall. There, there were times uh, just after that where they had double-walled cities where people kind of lived between. That doesn't appear to be the case here. It's, scholars are a little uh, back and forth on that. But she's right on the edge of the wall, like a buffer zone. And she's somebody who's probably tolerated in society. She provides some functions that kind of are, I guess, helpful um, in some ways, the innkeeper half of it. Um, but it certainly would be an easy place for spies to hide because there'd be a lot of activity. That's why they would go there. It's interesting that she's the only one in the story who mentions Yahweh. She's the only one who talks about God in the whole story at all, specifically Yahweh, the God that they serve, your God, she talks about. She uses that specific title. And in her actions, welcoming them in and then deceiving and lying, she takes great risk on her own part for their benefit. We may find unlikely partners in ministry as we live out God's mission. I would suggest that as disciples who make disciples, uh, living in this time and place, uh, we may have to do the same thing, or may be on the lookout for those kinds of things. I I think of uh, somebody, a colleague in ministry who um, works in an inner city environment with a very low income population and uh, as it turns out half of his pastoral role when he started was government funded because they wrote into his job description that he was a job skills coach and they set up a job training center for people who were out of work and so his evangelistic method was to go around door to door and invite people to come to the job skills training Now he's still a pastor he's still doing the work he's still evangelizing and reaching out to people but he's inviting them to a specific thing in a specific place where then they get to know him but half his job was funded by the government. Okay, that's an unlikely partner in ministry in that case. I I think even uh, recently for myself, uh, just in 2019, we did the Invitation to Racial Righteousness here. Uh, Pastor Jody was quite instrumental in putting that together and following it through, and I'm thankful to her for that. Um, And when we did that, we had a a group of 70-something multi-ethnic group of people downstairs discussing race and the history of race in the United States and how we approach that as people of faith and since that time I've been invited with people that in some cases would have been very unlikely partners to talk about how we kind of continue to walk that path in our city in some of the institutions it's been a very interesting journey sometimes we're going to find unlikely partners some days I'm I'm in agreement some days I'm not with the group but I'm not going to part ways because we can still do some things together unlikely partners in ministry if you consider Jesus we can consider him this morning he uh was Uh, walked with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He kept some unlikely company in his ministry, was even welcomed in by some of those people. Even if you think of Jesus preaching and talking to the woman at the well, she becomes a powerful witness for who Jesus is. That's an unlikely partner in what Jesus was doing. Rahab is just like that. It doesn't mean that everything she's doing is right. It means she's an unlikely partner in what God is doing. So that leads us to the second thing, though. Uh, if, when we live out God's mission with courageous conviction, yes, we may find unlikely partners in ministry, but we always have to remember that we should not cross the line ethically or morally to do so. And I think you also see that in the text as well. Rahab had an unreputable career. Rahab lied and deceived for the spies. She was not commanded by God to do that, nor did the spies ask her to do that, And this is one of those moments where we have to recognize that when we read something in the Bible, there are times when it's descriptive and times when it's prescriptive. This is a descriptive time. It describes what she did. At no point does it say, you should do this as well. This is faithfulness to God. And and we can recognize a couple other things about that. Um, The people wandered in the desert for 40 years, not being allowed to go into the land and not being allowed to go to Jericho before that because of their disobedience, because they had crossed the line ethically and morally before that they had prostituted themselves both literally and figuratively and thus they paid the price for a generation and wandered and were not allowed to enter into the promised land we can also see that when the the spies go in now here if you actually sat down and read the commentaries you'd find all kinds of interesting statements about if the spies utilize services other than the innkeeper part of what Rahab did And you'll find some that just kind of casually say, oh, sure, they probably did. But the language actually indicates they didn't. And if you use common sense to look at the text, why would they, if they paid the price for an entire generation for literally and figuratively prostituting themselves as Israel, why would they spy and go into the promised land and then do that right away? They didn't. The text says they didn't. The text leads us in a different direction. It's provocative language used in the text on purpose. Um, but it doesn't it's it indicates they did not do that they didn't cross that line morally or ethically the other thing about Rahab's deceit and lying is God obviously can accomplish what he wants to do in multiple ways he didn't need her to do that God could have cleared the land with a word God made them wander for 40 years and not let them enter God could have done that again if he wanted to God could have done all kinds of means and methods. God didn't need Rahab or the spies or the Israelites to accomplish his will, but he chose them. Why did he choose them? God chose Joshua. God perhaps even chose Rahab to be people who were part of his plan because he's designing, and he, the plan he designed because he's shaping them in the process of their obedience. Right? When we live with courageous conviction, fulfilling God's mission in the world, it will make us more godly, and it will glorify God in the process. That's why we can't cross the line morally and ethically. That's why when we have ministry partners along the way that maybe don't fit what we would have thought, we don't give up our theology and theological convictions in order to do that. In fact, we hold those very strongly. Otherwise, what are we doing? Third thing I would say is that when we live out God's mission with courageous conviction, we discover that God is already at work in the world around us. We're just joining his mission. He's already been at work. Back to verse 11. As an example, Rahab again says, When we heard, heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. The fear and the courage within Jericho melted away and the question is who picked it up where did it go right Joshua and the Israelites seem a little bit fearful up to this point as well did they pick up the fear it turns out that God uses Rahab among other things God uses Rahab to give courage to the spies to take back they take that back to the people the message confirms that God is at work already But this sometimes this is an easy thing for us to forget that God is already at work, even right now, not just in the room, but outside of this room. God is already working. God is doing things. Sometimes we come to something like evangelism uh, or inviting someone to church and our default position is they're probably not interested. Well, wait, is God working or not out there in the world? Is it possible that the people we work with, the people we pass by, the people we live near, that God is already at work in their hearts in many cases and somebody just needs the invitation to kingdom life? And somebody just needs the invitation to come and join with kingdom people? And somebody just needs the invitation to come a little closer to Jesus. Is God already at work or not out in the world? And we're just joining his mission. Sometimes we have that because of the culture we live in. We think, well, there's, there's even more sort of anti-Christian feeling out there or just disinterest or whatever the case may be. So people aren't interested, but is God at work or not in the world? Did God work on our lives to bring us to him? He can do it in other people, and he's probably doing it already. Are we looking around for it? God's already at work inviting us onto the mission. We can do a with change within the church too, right? The world around us has changed and continues to change. We need to make sure that we don't give up our theological stance, of course, but that we change how we do things within the church so we better invite people in because God is already at work and we're not afraid of those changes. We know that God has called us on his mission and it's gonna take many different forms and many different ways to do that. But God is at work inviting us in. The final truth I would point out And I think there's just a great truth this morning is that God is gracious. God is gracious and welcomes those who respond to his mission. God's gracious to the spies. He lets them complete their work and return home with a good word. God is gracious to Rahab, isn't he? Even though it's your God, it's not her God yet. It's your God. God saves her physically. We'll see that as as Jericho comes up later. Because of her response in what I would call true fear. She has reverence for God, even if it's not her God yet. She has reverence for God. She acknowledges specifically Yahweh, just not some general idea of God, but specifically the one true God. And if you notice, she recognizes the need to be obedient to the plan in order to get salvation. She cannot work this herself, she cannot earn this herself. There's a plan. Put the red cord in the window, make sure everybody's in there. If you don't follow the plan, you won't be saved. God is gracious with that obedience and allows her to be saved. She continues down that path. God welcomes her in. It's the same with us through Jesus Christ. God welcomes us in by his graciousness to those who respond to his mission. Rahab herself is is attested to in Scripture, in Hebrews, in James, and even in Matthew. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So we know she was physically saved. James 2.25 says, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And finally, we can see in the genealogy, as Matthew presents it, that she's one of the four women named in there, specifically an outsider who became an insider through her obedience and response to God when God reveals the mission we respond with courageous conviction what you can see in Rahab's story that testifies to us is that courageous conviction for her was actually the realization that she was on the losing side and needed to join the winning side she needed to join the God who was already at work who was already victorious that's what she needed to do and the first courageous conversation that we need to have starts between us and the one true God, if we're going to have courageous conviction conviction to live his mission, do we believe first and foremost that God has called us on his mission with him? Let's pray, and then we'll go to the table. Lord, I thank you for uh, the faith of the spies of Joshua, of even Rahab. I thank you, Lord, that you called them to your service, to your mission, and because of that, we're here today. Because of that, Uh, We can recognize the salvation that comes through your son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for all that you've done and continue to do in this world. We know that you are at work, calling us into that work with you. Lord, help us see this week where you're already working. Help us be people who invite others into your kingdom life and into your salvation and hope. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.